Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Intermission podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and in this show we discuss cars and films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. My guest today is creative director of Cars for Pixar, Jay Ward. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. We'll get back to that job title in a second because there's something to unpack there. But first of all, as we ask all our guests, what is your favourite movie or TV car of all time? It's easy to say the DB5, the James Bond DB5, because I think everybody had the die cast of one and I think it had so many gadgets. It was the original gadget car. Probably one of my favorites for that, but I really love the Interceptor from Mad Max as well. That that first scene when they push up on the blower spinning and they had all these fake sounds pushing to it, like it, you know, this cacophony of like whirling and whizzing sounds that it worked all completely fake, but it was so cool. Um, I think that's probably one of the more visceral cars to me that just stood out in my mind as a kid. So what are your first memories of cars when you were young? Well, my father was an auto wholesaler, and that's somebody who buys cars and he fixes them up and sells them for a bit more. Um, and he had a shop where he would we would drive around and he would purchase the, the traded in vehicles from the dealerships to the new car dealerships. And he would purchase those and fix them up and he would buff them with a wheel and do the stripe tape when that was in vogue. And um, a lot of memories of that. Also, uh, when I was a kid, he would bring home different cars, really wild things. And one time he brought home this Volkswagen dropside pickup, you know, the actual 70s or 60s uh, dropside pickup cabs. But somebody had shortened it. This was a popular thing in the late 70s, early 80s was this taking a, a number of, you know, feet out of the wheelbase and this thing pop wheelies. And so he put in the bed of the truck and then was popping these wheelies and you know just these weird things that stand out in your mind going up on a lift on an automotive lift and he would take us up and back down on the lift those kind of things are just like ingrained in my mind and were they mostly american cars or did you have quite a varied diet of cars growing up really very diet for my father because he um he was a, a guy who always aspired to have a nicer car than really what we could afford so he would do these barters and trades. He bought a Maserati Ghibli that had been flipped on its roof. It was fly yellow. The windshield had popped out when somebody had flipped it. And he traded a 68 Pontiac Grand Prix and let's say six or $700 in cash for a fly yellow Maserati Ghibli. He popped the roof back out. He put in a windscreen and he had that car when we were little. He had a Dino at one point. He had a blue on blue Dino, which I've since tracked down. I found the guy who owns it now. I want to go see it someday. Oh, Wow. Yeah, he brought home many cool cars. Unfortunately, by the time I was old enough to drive, he had sort of gotten a lot of that out of his system and became pragmatic. And I was like, why now? Why? <laughs> but there was, a, there was a good time period. Were you into any particular cars growing up or were you just like a sponge for cars? Probably more the sponge for cars. I remember I, um, I would sit, the, at least where I lived, there, the Sunday paper always had classifieds. And the Sunday classified was the more deluxe one. If you were going to run your car ad, you ran it on a Sunday. And I would get that and I would lay that paper out on Sundays and I would go through the classic car section and I would just circle all the ones that sounded interesting. And then I had a book, which I still have my original copy of the book. It was called Car Spotter's Guide by Tad Burness for American cars specifically, because that's what I understood. If you showed me a, you know, a Vauxhall or a Humbler or something, I'd go, ah, didn't mean anything to me. But when I saw something with big tail fins and chrome, I went, oh, that's so cool. And I would look up and learn about the car. So that's how I got my education. And then what was it that attracted you to Pixar? Well, I went to art school. I studied illustration. Uh, I did printmaking illustration, which is very specific. It was like German expressionist style woodcut prints that I did for fashion. And I did them for uh, editorial. And I did them for magazines and newspapers. But freelance art is a it's really a slog. You, you have to 
constantly sell yourself and work at it and work at it. And people use your work without asking and try to shortcut you. And you're becoming this business manager and creative all in one. It's just not fun. A young guy I had gone to art school with was a sculptor and he was older than me. When he graduated, he went to work on Nightmare Before Christmas. So I was still in school and he put my name on a tombstone in Nightmare Before Christmas. And he said, I remember he called me. I was still in school. He said, hey, do you want your name on a tombstone? And I said, (laughs) yeah. His name's Jerome, and I still work with him to this day. And I said, Jerome, why did you pick me uh, for the name on the tombstone? He said, well, your name's short. (laughs) Fair enough. He said, also, it doesn't have a lot of curved letters. Your name is a lot of straight shapes, which is much easier. So he was brutally honest. But that was enough to give me the bug to say, you know, I like drawing and I like doing these things. But how cool is it to actually make a thing that lives on forever that goes into you know, the popular vernacular that it goes into culture, like you're making something that affects culture in a bigger way when you make a film. And so um, when I graduated school, I did freelance for a few years. And then I worked at motorcycle shops and I did all these things to help pay the bills because I loved cars. But I thought, what if I end up doing this the rest of my life? It's going to take that love away from me. And uh, he said, you know, there's an opening at Pixar. We have a film called Hidden City, which was the working title for Monsters, Inc. And he said, it's an entry level job. It's like a production assistant. He said, you could do this job very easily. And I said, okay. And so I went and applied and I think I first applied for story and that didn't make sense. And I actually ended up working in the art department, which was perfect because I had an art understanding. I knew how artists thought. I I still bought my own supplies. So I knew what supplies they wanted when they said they wanted a non-photo blue pencil or whatever that was. I understood those, that thing. And so I started off in the art department on Monsters, Inc. when it was still very early days, which I'm so fortunate when I look back on now that Pixar was about 350 people when I started. Yeah. So you said there that you, you work in motorcycle shops. Are you the kind of get your hands dirty kind of car guy? Yeah. And I, I built a, a number of motorcycles when I was younger and I'm still really a motorcycle nut, which I'm sure I should have grown out of by now. But I also love building cars. And when my wife and I got married, I built a traditional Uh, Model A Roadster in our garage, which was an old carriage house. And I built it from parts and I built it for around $6,000, $6,500 just by being smart and buying used things and all this. And I built this whole eBay and um, built a whole car up. And I still have that car. I drove that to Bonneville and back one year with a friend. And yeah. And when you were going through art school, Mm. I'm curious, like people who go to art school, and I, I didn't go to art school, I should say, was the parking lot there just an eclectic mix of the interesting and the curious or was it just the same you would get at any university or school anywhere at that age it's funny i i don't think there was that many people that had vehicles because early on in art school everybody was so broke that they really had some hand-me-down thing but i remember i had a a harley davidson and and to be 18 or 19 and have one was kind of a big deal and this is long before they were so trendy and popular. And I remember writing it up on the campus and parking on the campus and feeling quite cool about that. I really wish I would have spent more effort and time on creating art rather than on that motorcycle. Because I ended up rebuilding the engine while I was in school in the closet in my in my uh, in my flat with my flatmates, like rebuilding the engine and doing this. And so I've always been torn. I've always been very much a gearhead and yet very much appreciative of art and culture. So it's 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 always been a, a pull for me in those two directions. I've always wondered about bikes. I think there's an aesthetic to them, which is very 
much like a, a posh watch where the, all the the mechanisms are on display and you can see how everything works. Yeah. There, there seems to be a lot of a culture in, in the States, probably more than certainly in the UK, both for motorcycles and for, for hot rods, of having that kind of very exposed look and having everything just beautifully finished. What is it about the form and about the bikes that encourages that sort of fanaticism and detail on them? Well, for me, I think it was more accessible than a classic car. For me, it was you could build you could build a little Honda Cafe racer for a thousand bucks as opposed to buying an old car. And then, you know, in the Bay Area where I live, not not unlike London, it's hard to find places to park something, right? To, to actually have a, a garage is difficult. And so the motorcycle, you could stuff it next to the house or down a walkway or those kind of things. So for me, it was a, there was a practicality to that. Um, but beyond that, the beauty of it for me was simplicity. I think the beauty of me was like racing, like anything, you always strip everything down as much as you can until you don't miss it. And then you just add just enough back. And I always think about a motorcycle as what is the minimum you can boil you know, a self-propelled vehicle too. And it's the minimum is two wheels and the minimum is an engine and a seat and something to control it. And that's what a bike is in its essence is it is minimalist transportation. And, and there's, there's a beauty to that. What went through your head when you found out there was a movie at Pixar being made called Cars? Well, I never thought the two worlds would actually collide because I was building cars on my own on the side. I ran a, a, a big car show called Billetproof, which was a low buck, um, traditional build it yourself car show that we sort of in the nineties had this pushback movement against the big glitzy, you know, cherry red 32 Ford that some guy had built for him for a hundred thousand dollars. We were pushing back against that because we were building our own cars. And this movement in the nineties started a lot in California, Southern California. And then we had a smaller pod in the Bay area here. And so a friend and I started a show called Billetproof, and it was this low buck, do-it-yourself show. And that had grown already by the time I started at Pixar. We were already in our second or third year. So that was already going on on the side. I'm working on Monsters, Inc. It's a totally separate world. And then um, Jonas Rivera, who I worked with on cars, pulled open a flat file one day, and he showed me this artwork. And it was about this little car in this town. And, um, I thought, well, this is really cute. It reminded me of an old Disney short. It felt like a Disney short. And I thought, yeah, that's cool. I'd love to work on that. And monsters was starting to wrap at that point. And I was one of the first production people pulled onto cars. And I thought, wow, they're, they're actually studying, right? Because Pixar is very big about getting all those details, right? They're studying this world that I, that I know about. And then they started saying there was going to be like a hot rod character in the movie, which ended up going away and Lizzie stuck around, but there used to be a 32 Ford in the movie called Josephine. I remember we had, um, all these guys looking through old hot rod magazines and having people come and speak and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, it's like my worlds are coming together. This is amazing. So that research, I mean, I, I've seen some of the documentaries and to all of our listeners, if, if you ever want to know about animation and the amount of detail that goes into all of these films, the behind the scenes documentaries on the, the DVDs and the Blu-rays are amazingly detailed and they're they're a brilliant education in how to make a film like this. What was there that you noticed when you first got involved that either people were taking liberties with or that wasn't quite sitting right? Where was the the realism bridge, if you like, that people were bringing to it? It's really, it's a great question. And it's also a really hard line because 
you want to make your subject matter believable, right? You want to walk and go, I believe that's a fish and Nemo swimming around. And I want to believe that those are toys that have come to life when Andy leaves the room. And for cars, you're taking an existing thing, a vehicle, and we all know how vehicles operate and move and they look on the road. And vehicles are heavy things. They, they weigh a lot. You can't just flip and flop and twist. And I think our earliest learnings were in the desire to make them animated and keep them alive. They got too rubbery too quickly and it lost the believability. It lost the truth in materials. And if you're not true to the materials, you you soon write that off as being grounded in, in this reality that you're creating, right? Our films are not real, but they have a reality to them. They have rules to that world that we keep intact, right? So the toys never go to human size. They remain in this toy steel and they're made out of toy materials and they move like a toy, right? Like a, a stiff-legged character versus a loose-legged. We keep those those rules intact. And for cars, we had to keep the rules intact, but we had to keep the cars alive. And so we began too rubbery and then we began to lock things down until we knew the mouth had to move. We knew the eyes had to move. We realized that the front wings or the front fenders became shoulders and that the tires were gesturing the way hands gesture. And that was kind of like, okay, this, this is all believable and not too stiff. And then when they roll around and they can move on their chassis, they can start to emote. And that, that was working and took a, took a good six to eight months working with the animators to get that to feel believable. For one of our recent episodes, I went back and watched The Love Bug for the first time in 35 years, maybe. And it was really interesting to see how they were getting a, a real car to emote just through shaking and through dipping its nose and what have you. And I actually went back and watched cars off the back of that. And what I really spotted, you absolutely the thing about the tyres become hands, they can point, they can, they can touch buttons or, or do whatever. But also there's a scene, so the very first scene of the very first film, when they're going around the oval, as they come off one of the turns, there's a bump. And what I, I noticed was that the, the way that they handled the bump looked incredibly realistic. Yeah. To the point that, in my head, I kind of thought, they get it. it you know, this is a real world. Yeah. And then you can kind of, once you're in that world, you can then start to go, well... Of course they can gesture and jump and turn and even things like when lightning bounces off the other car and the wheels sag and, you know, the camber of the, the suspension kind of kicks in. There's enough in there that I took it as a real thing. I, you know, it became, it became a real car that could then also do this other stuff. But then I, I started sort of thinking about it and I'd never thought about it before. I always thought that Lightning McQueen was just a NASCAR. Uh -huh. What is Lightning McQueen? <laughs> well, first I want to address what you said when you saw the cars move or the bump that they moved the way that they would. Another really brilliant thing they thought of early on was we set up each car's rig, which think about the rig as their, um, the, the skeleton underneath the car of the way they move. We set up each rig to be authentic to the type of car it was. So for instance, Luigi, which is a Fiat 500, has a transverse leaf front and rear, right? They're, they're, those cars have a single. And when he moves, that suspension moves the right way. Sheriff is a 49 Mercury, which those tend to have very soggy suspension. You can't turn directions too quickly and the body kind of wallows. And we put that into the character. And so, you know, the first thing I always say is these cars are characters that happen to be vehicles, not vehicles that are characters. So it's a character embodied through a vehicle. And so we try to take the attributes of both. Uh, Bob Polly drew the model packet for Sheriff and he drew 
a 49 Mercury, and then a cop that had had one too many donuts. <laughs> you know, the guy who has to kind of pull his pants up. It's like it's like Chief Wiggum in The Simpsons. And when you take a 49 Mercury, which you think of as like James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause, but then you add Chief Wiggum to it, you get this sort of wallowing, you know, character that's kind of running out of breath trying to chase the bad guys. And that's Sheriff, right? And he moves like a 49 Mercury, but it's one that's had a couple too many donuts. When McQueen and Mater are running from Frank the Combine, watch that scene again because they're going through a rutted field. And Mater, his suspension is so soft and so out of, you know, there's just his shocks were probably used up years ago that his body is like a dog that just glides over the top and the legs are doing all the movement. McQueen is incredibly stiff like a race car. So he's just bouncing like crazy, right? Like if you try to drive a properly set up race car through a field, you're going to rattle your teeth out. I mean, you've seen some Top Gear episodes where those guys are, you know, taking a Lotus off road and it's destroying them, right? That's what we try to do with McQueen as well. So they move the way the real cars move. What's McQueen actually, uh, I'm guessing he must be a composite of some design elements of other cars or some sort of concept to make him, NASCARs when you look at them are actually quite, almost quite straight. They're quite sedan-like. Yes, and the problem even more so when we made the movie, they were quite boring. I mean, the shapes were extremely boring then because there was a desire to make them aerodynamic so that we called them jelly beans because they were so smooth and colorful, but there was no character to them. And we use that to our advantage because the only way you can tell one NASCAR from another one back then was these loud, crazy paint jobs, right? You just followed the the red and blue splatter or the yellow and green splatter around the track. You didn't really know if it was a Ford or a Chevrolet or a Dodge at that point. You just, you couldn't tell. And we stepped back from that and said, great, make all those the background cars. They just sort of blend in together. Let's make our hero a unique shape. Uh, and then the King we based on a classic 70 Superbird, which is such an iconic shape. You can't miss that car. And then Chick Hicks was supposed to sort of be the ugliest era of the NASCAR, right? He was like the, the very late 70s Oldsmobile Cutlass. Not not a good design, if you will. No no results out there to the late 70s GM fans, but those are, those are not pretty cars. For McQueen, we looked at the cars we loved, right? And we took the influence from all of those, whether it be Can-Am race style cars, you know, muscle cars, uh, classic American cars, and definitely some European elegance. And that all got combined with with McQueen. He's not based on any one car. And that's what I think is neat about him is you kind of recognize something, but you're like, but that's different. And that's what we, that's what I think we do really well. Buzz Lightyear and Woody were not based on any real toys, but you can imagine a child playing with those in the late fifties, early sixties. Obviously, where you've got lightning, it has a basis for what that race car would be underneath. With something like Finn McMissile, Mm. if you're creating something fictional, but you have that mentality of, were you going to the point of, this is the suspension that it'd have, it'd have disc brakes in the front and drums in the rear, and the engine would probably be a, a Rover P1 engine on Weber carbs or something like that. There's a bit of that, right? So we, we knew that he was British and we knew that he was 60s. And and we actually had Aston Martins featured in the movie, but we didn't want him to be an Aston. We just thought that's just too on the nose. He should be his own car. And there was a lot of other great cars in that period. There was, there was the Peerless that had those cool little fins on them. Um, there was a number of neat little British cars in that era. And we sort of looked at all of them. Like even the Volvo P1800 was cool. There were so many neat Uh, designs going on in that era of the 60s with really fine effects that we knew if we got 
enough of those elements together with Sir Michael Caine's voice, I think you're like, okay, I, I know who this character is. I, I know what this car is about. And we end up with something beautiful. I remember on Cars 2, we made uh, life-size versions of the vehicles that did this U.S. tour. And the gentleman who built them really wanted a to make a real Fenwick missile. And we, we built a fin that traveled for the tour. But he said, I measured and fins proportions and life-size are the same thing as a I think it's called a Pontiac Solstice in the U.S. And there was another one called the, the um, Saturn Sky. It was the little convertibles. I don't know if they came to the U.K. Yeah, they were very American. But they were these very European compact proportion convertibles. And he said, I measured and fin the body we made would fit perfectly on one of those chassis. We could just make a drivable thing. And we came very close to doing it. But, yeah, it would have been cool. That's interesting because I th- there's obviously there's a school of design that goes with cars, looking at proportions of overhangs and wheelbase to cabin height and all these sorts of things. When you're designing a car as a character, are there people that have that sort of background to make a car with the proportions that you would expect in real life? Is it just one of those things that a beautiful car is beautiful, whether a, a, a car designer designs it or, or somebody draws it in the back of their exercise book at school? It, it will always be a, a beautiful proportion. I, I, I think we were fortunate because a number of the people who designed the car characters were truly gearhead automotive people at their core. It doesn't mean somebody on the outside couldn't do that, but most artists think of humans first and trying to make a human version of a car really isn't as appealing as finding the hard shapes of a car that are beautiful and accentuating those and then saying, uh, what character is this? I think works a lot better. So like I mentioned Bob Polly earlier, he was born in Michigan to an automotive family, uh, but grew up in San Jose, but total car guy. Jay Schuster, whose dad worked at General Motors for 40 years, designed Wally and Eve. Uh, designed Finn Missile as well because he understood automotive shapes. So I think that that core understanding of what's sexy to a car person, what what looks stunning to a car person, and then translating that into our world is important. Actually, there's one thing that we haven't touched on. We've kind of got carried away with the cars because that's kind of this podcast. I mentioned at the start, so your job title is the creative director of cars for mm-hmm. Pixar. Mm-hmm. What does that actually mean in non-corporate speak? <laughs> yeah, I and mean, that's the thing is we're not very corporate at Pixar. And, you know, we didn't even, when my title first started, we called it the, um, what do we call it? Cars Franchise Guardian. You know, we sort of thought of all these things, but the idea is that our movies live on when they're done. I think Pixar may be more so than other places that when we finish a film, the, the people who love it and follow it and want to keep immersing themselves in that movies look for things related to that film to keep that world alive, whether it be through uh, a theme park attraction or buying the toys for somebody like your son or a video game. All those things extend the storytelling in a positive way when they're done well. In the past, uh, many movie makers would finish up a film and they'd just toss it over the fence and the movie studio would take it and run away with it and make whatever. And it may not even line up with what the filmmaker ever thought the movie. I don't think that makes sense for it or that it's not something that's elevating for the film. And so the, the idea was to make me the person that oversaw everything related to cars because I knew the film so well and I knew the world so well and make sure that it all met our standard of what we wanted for that world going forward because it's so popular Everybody wanted to make things related to cars. It just worked well on so many levels for consumer products and for theme parks and publishing and games that, you know, the machine just fired up and they were all making things willy nilly. And and we said it all should go through us. 
it should always go through Pixar. And if it's cars related, I should look at it and hopefully, you know, steer it in the right direction or say no to some things. And that's why that job was created. And now I do that for all a franchise. So it goes beyond cars now. You obviously spend so much time with your working day just involved, immersed in cars and other other franchises. Yeah. What's it like, though, when the real world kind of collides with, with cars? So when you go to an event or you go to, I can't remember which, which Grand Prix it was now, but there's a Grand Prix and there's a, a Lightning McQueen in a pit garage. Like, yeah, we had a Silverstone in 2017 and I got to go for that. And that that to me was everything I could imagine coming together because I do love F1. We've talked about that. I'm an F1 fan. And I had never been to Silverstone before. I'd always wanted to go. And in 2017, we worked with our UK team and I had to fly back and forth. We built a life-size McQueen, a life-size Jackson Storm. And they were they were literally in, in the paddock. They were right next to the FIA on one side. And I think it was Sauber Alfa Romeo on the other. And I'm there in our own garage. And I'm thinking, this is as good as it can possibly get. And what was cool about it too was pit crew and, and other teams coming by and geeking out and photographing our cars. And I'm thinking, no, I want to go to Europe <laughs> and they're coming to us. And I remember this was the coolest part. There was a tire changer for Ferrari and he rolled up his sleeve and he had Guido <gasps> with the tires. And I'm like, no. he literally was Guido. He was the fastest tire changer and he's the little Italian guy. And I was like, it, it all came together when, when you affect popular culture, it, it, it's amazing. And I got to go around the track that day. I got to, you know, fly out of there in a helicopter. I mean, it was truly like a rock star experience. Um, Lewis Hamilton won the race and he was a voice for us in car three. You know, he invited me to go to the little after party with him. I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty epic. I will say it was pretty, pretty, I would say top 10 of all moments. Yeah. Which was the first Grand Prix that you went to with in a sort of cars capacity where you had paddock access and, and all that? There's two good stories. So the, the first one was on Cars 2 was our first time making an international film. And they said, all right, we got to do a research trip. We only are going to have time to do one research trip. So we're going to do it all in one trip. And we went to six countries in 11 days. Wow. And so, we, yeah, it was really insane. But we saw a lot. Really, it was like a, a shotgun Europe tour. We flew into the UK. We did, uh, you know, we did the London Eye and a downtown London tour and, and, and Westminster Abbey. And, you know, we did all that super fast. The, the Muse, the Royal Muse, all these things. Then we, um, what did we do? We channeled through to Paris. We ended up in Paris. We, we got on the back of motorcycles and did a motorcycle tour through Paris because they'll pop up on the sidewalk and let you snap pictures and run out and do your things, but you can't do that in a car. So we did these motorcycle tours. Then from Paris, we took a train over to Stuttgart. We visited the Porsche Museum. It had just, just opened at that point. And um, we hired two cars, a huge, it was stupid to do this, uh, a BMW 7 Series, which is far too large. Like it seems cool in the US, but in Europe, you've got roads that are just no. And then we had an uh, Audi uh, A6 Avant which was on the edge of being too big, right? We really should have gotten tiny cars, but you know, Americans, they like these big roomy vehicles and off we go. And we drove from Stuttgart down through the black forest. We were going to have in cars Two a scene uh, in Germany in the black forest and it just, it didn't make it, but we photographed these great fire roads they have in the German forest. It looks like a rally setting. Um, we went to Triburg and Freiburg and Wolfhawk and all these cool towns. And then from there we went down into Italy 
Uh, we went to the Fiat Museum. Uh, we went to Turin, and they have the old rooftop racetrack, which is now um, the hotel. We stayed at that hotel, and the newer track from the 40s. We went on that track. They brought out the new, I think it was when the 8C came out, the beautiful bay came out. They brought out a Lancia rally car. They just brought out all this cool stuff. And I'm like, they're bringing this out for us to like cruise around in these. It was just phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal trip. And then we went um, uh, from the Fiat factory in Turin down to Portofino because that's kind of where Porta Corsa's inspiration came from. So we were in Portofino for a night, which is beautiful. Then we drove along the coast towards Nice and stopped in Monaco. And I remember we arrived in Monaco the Friday of the race weekend. And that day before they close it off, the, you're on the road. You're, you're on the course. And I'm, I'm driving the car and I go, you guys, we're, we're, we're actually we're, we're on Monaco. Like we're actually driving the, the circuit, if you will. And I, it was, again, one of those moments that you just you'll never forget. And I drove the whole thing with the guys and they, I made them do the whole circuit. And I go, you guys will never do this again in our lives, honestly. And I remember we drove the whole thing and then it just kind of dead ended with cars that were hanging out and partying and guys in Ferraris just jumping out and drinking champagne. And it's it's like this weird life thing that we we didn't belong there. at all. We totally just did not belong there. But it was great. And we just left the rental car and got out and, you know, drank and hung out with these people on a Friday night. And then we watched Quali the next day. This is the year that Jensen Button was in the white brawn GP car. So again, like amazing, amazing year to see. It's amazing to be at Monaco. The, the, the one thing I've always heard about Monaco is the sound, particularly back then with the, because that would have been the, v, uh, the V10s. No, it was, it was just after the V10s. This would be the V8 cars. This would be 2009. And yeah, the sound was epic because it's like coming into a bullfighting ring. You can hear just... <laughs> echoing off the walls as you're approaching this hallowed ground. And um, I remember walking the streets that day, the people watching there with, you know, the, the, the woman with her toy dog in a Bentley convertible parking in a red zone and just walking away because she came in. And um, there was a vendor selling uh, clothing and it was obviously his own stuff. It wasn't real F1, but he had a Lightning McQueen F1 shirt. <laughs> like I went, yes, we're here. We're even at Monaco. It was genius. But that was my first real you know, European, a proper F1 race. You know, I think I'd probably gone to Long Beach as a kid, but it wasn't quite the same. This was real and it was, it was pretty cool. When you were driving the circuit at Monaco, I'm guessing you probably didn't need directions or anybody to tell you which way to go. No, and it was great because the Armco's were starting to go up. You know, it was like, it was literally like they were just tampering down to it being a track. It was all set up pretty much but the police hadn't kicked everybody off yet so i think we really hit it at just the right time it was it was fantastic have you seen the uh, netflix series drive to survive of course both seasons yes as a filmmaker and as somebody involved in story and in editing and all this sort of thing yeah what do you think of those series drive to survive does a good job because the goal of the series honestly the goal of the series is to make people aware of f1 that are not aware of it i think for somebody like you or i we can talk about these drivers all day and we know who they are but to get somebody who's not a car person interested you have to have drama and story you have to relate to these characters not unlike what we do with pixar films and so when you hear the story of Ocon, a guy with no money right or you hear the story of 
you know, Haas and, and how just they're on the ragged edge of the whole team falling apart. That's interesting. That drama is interesting. And it makes people want to follow F1 that otherwise didn't think about it before. So to me, that that's a brand deposit that builds the brand up. I think the more interesting one was the Williams documentary about Sir Frank Williams. Yes. That was a hard one because I can tell you from people at Williams, they didn't know the angle that the filmmakers would go to about Sir Frank. And you kind of walk away going, he was so driven by his love of racing. Did he love it more than his family? Did he love it more than life? Did he put racing above his own life? And I'd say, yeah, he did. And you also see the dynamics between Claire and her brother and a lot of things I don't think they, you know, if they were given first rider refusal, they'd say, well, maybe we just leave that part off. And it's all in there. I don't think it makes you like Williams as a team any less. I think I, I love them just as much, if not more. But you also go, wow, this is this is tough when, when a person's running this empire and and, and what, what, what can happen in the way the dynamics go, you know? Before Drive to Survive, there was the the one season that Amazon Prime did where they focused on McLaren. What was that one called? Was it called? Grand Prix Driver. Grand Prix Driver. And that one was tough because you could tell McLaren thought we're, we're on the edge. Like we're about ready to turn it all back around. And and luckily Amazon is going to catch this and they'll be, and by the way, probably some sponsorship and, and they're going to they're going to see the rising of this Phoenix from the ashes. And it wasn't to be It all. Just you felt by the end of that, that you like, you know, what you want in a drama is a, a one, two, three act structure, right? Your protagonist goes on the journey and things are going well. And then it takes a terrible dive, but then they recover and they save the day. And that series went, Oh no, it's, Oh, oh no, 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 no. I read somewhere that Grand Prix driver was supposed to be quite a, I was going to say run of the mill, but quite a kind of normal documentary about Stoffel van Dorn going from GP2 to being an F1 driver and the things that a driver has to do to prepare to become a Grand Prix driver. And then halfway through, the whole Honda thing happened. So if you watch it now, the first couple of episodes are actually quite boring because it's a nice guy doing the thing that he's always wanted to do. And then suddenly the whole thing shifts because they kind of go, oh, God, somebody in an edit booth has gone, this story is amazing. Look, you know, we've got this footage of them trying to fire up the car and things aren't fitting and everybody's scratching their heads. And I think the third and fourth episode of that are one of the most tense things I think I've ever watched. It's gritty. It's gritty because, you know, you know, you know, as an F1 fan that McLaren has this storied history and to go through this long of a slump, to go through this long of a dry spell for them. And then the Ron, Ron Dennis, you know, uh, overturn and, and Zach Brown coming in. And I mean, they're finally, you know, this year obviously has just gone into the, into the rubbish bin, but you, you were finally, finally all these, what's it been three years since that was shot. You're finally starting to see glimmers of that, that team getting their mojo back, but wow, what a long painful road for anybody who loves McLaren just to watch the number of times they had DNFs was just, Tragic, tragic, tragic. When you went to Cota, did you ever have the opportunity to go up the really tall towers? Is it on the inside of turn one? No, it's um, but, but, but it's around the backside. It's in the last few turns bef- before the last three turns. Right. Yeah. But you can see everything from up there, and it's gorgeous, and it has a glass floor. Um, so when I went with my two friends, uh, remember that first year in 13, I realized one of them had a real problem with heights. And... He literally kind of lost it a bit. We went up in the tower and he walked out and he saw that glass. And just seeing that glass, 
he went into this kind of cocoon mode. <laughs> I went, okay, why don't you just stand by the elevator? Well, we're going to be over here. And you know, I, I'm not going to dance up and down on the glass or try to and fate, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't immobilize me. Um, but it's beautiful. It really is cool up there. Favorite F1 car of all time. Mm, you know what? I went to, I went to Williams headquarters in Grove and walked through that museum. I think they've sadly sold off some of those great cars since then because of, financial difficulty but seeing the cars from the nigel manzel you know the nikon cars that are those are just gorgeous just beautiful beautiful the the early 90s with them is great uh the 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 uh the, the mid to late 70s of the nikki lauda ferraris are they're, they're kind of iconic to me because that's what was around when i was a young kid my dad bought for my little brother there was a scaled down version of the nikki lauda car that was really expensive. They were made in Italy. They only made a handful of them. They had a two-stroke engine and big slicks on them. It was just like an F1 car. There's one on Bring a Trailer right now that was already at $22,000 when I got off looking at it. Yeah, they're insane. Wow. My little brother had one back in like the 80s. I, I told him, I said, don't watch this auction at the end or you're going to get depressed. But that was cool. That was a beautiful car. What about you? Oh, MP44 is mm. one of, definitely one of them. The Williams from, when would it have been? It would have been when Hill won the championship. So when that, it was all Rothman's liveried, but it hadn't yet gone to the really high nose and all the flicks and all the addendum. And what one of the things. I think it's FW14. That's the car that's the Canon car. The 14B was the one that Mansell won the championship in. That's the car that I mentioned. Yeah, you're right. And what year yeah. was... That was 92. Because okay. he then went to Newman Haas for 93. Okay. That was when Prost came in and, well, walked the title, to be to be frank. Yeah. This is also years of active suspension, right? They, oh, yeah. They, yeah, just so cool. Like, when the, you could really just have a weapons-grade car that just blew everybody else away. I think that's so cool. One of the unfortunate side effects of what's going on at the moment is that there's a, a, a TV channel in the UK devoted to F1, and they don't have a whole lot to show at the moment. So they're, <laughs> so they're showing all these old races, and you watch something, particularly you know early 90s, and the two things that jump out at me, one, the cars look so plain they look so simple like the shapes are just really they don't have all of the flicks and the curves and the ridges and the all that sort of stuff that they have now yeah but also the thing that terrifies me aside from the height of the cockpit sides the pit lane was racing speed and there was no restrictions on people in the pit lane so there'd be people just milling about you know senna would come piling in full racing speed jam on the brakes dive into the pits and apparently he was doing something like 150 in a 20 foot wide pit lane by the time he went over the exit line and you just watch it and you go how on why did more people die? That's the question. Yes. Why? <laughs> yeah. I just, it was about four years ago when there was an unsafe release and just a wheel came off and just flew into a, I think it was a cameraman and just, I mean, it, it knocked him so hard. It was like a cartoon character, just limbs flopping up in the air and you go, it's, it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. You better be, be very aware when you're there. I really could just talk all night about F1. and <laughs> me, me too. You know, I made a bucket list decision to go to a different race every year until I get through all of them. Okay. Uh, so, so far it was Monaco, US, of course I've done. 
Silverstone in 17, which is the year I sort of made the, the deal to do that. 18 was Hockenheim. Uh, 19 was Mexico City. And um, I did Monza in 15, and I did Monza again in 19. So I did Monza just last year as well. Wow. So, so far, um, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I have to hit, I've hit, oh, and I've been to China. I went to the Shanghai Grand Prix in 2012 for cars research. So I still need to hit quite a few, but I've got, you know, I've got some decent ones under my belt. I'm excited. I think, let's just talk about the F1 calendar for this year. Let's just say, by hook or by crook, they get back to racing by September, October, maybe. I think Japan in October would be the, if I had to, if you had to spend your own money on a plane ticket and your, and your things, what would you book and feel safe about for F1 for this year? Oh, wow. None of them. (laughs) See, this is the tragedy. I went on and started looking at airfare. I could fly my whole family to Japan you know, right now, so cheap, right? I could go to the F1 race. I'm sure the hotel rooms would be pennies on the dollar, but if I book all that now, right, is it is it going to happen? And if it does, am I going to be allowed to sit by anybody? I, I don't know what it's going to look like. Mm, yeah, sad sad times, but uh, I I think I, I would love to go to, love to go to the Japanese Grand Prix. I think that would, that would absolutely be on my, on my bucket list. Yeah, me as well. I, I've become friends a little bit with David Croft, you know, Crofty, because oh, yeah, yeah. he's voice for one of the Planes films um, that Disney made. But but he's just a good guy. He's just a – I love him. And um, spent some time with him, and he said, you would really appreciate Japan. He said, that's that's one worth going to. You know, he, he, he mentioned a couple, and he said, you can miss this, you can miss that. But he said, Japan's a really good one, really good one. So I think whenever you have fans, and I think I've seen that with Pixar as well, Japan – their fandom is deep. When they love something, they truly immerse themselves in it. I went to Tokyo Disneyland for Halloween one year, and everybody makes their own costumes. They, they don't buy some thing off the shelf. They make it, and it's perfect, and it's beautiful. And there was a girl in her early 20s that was stunning, dressed Stinky Pete the Prospector from Toy Story 2. <laughs> and she had the pickaxe and the floppy hat and the overalls and the boots, and she was amazing. And her boyfriend had the Sid shirt on and he had made the Pizza Planet truck as a cardboard cutout that he could walk around with. And it it had every decal on the back of the truck. It was just as only the Japanese could do it. And that, that, that to me, I remember the first time I made it, I helped work on a short called Presto. It's about Magician the Rabbit. I was the producer for that. And we flew to Japan. This is when Wally came out and we did, this is my first time going to Japan. We did press for uh, Wally in Tokyo. And then we had to go down to Hiroshima for the animation festival. We showed Presto at the Hiroshima Animation Festival. And we had a translator with us from the Disney office. And there was another Japanese girl driving us. And the girl driving us was really quiet. And I was trying to, you know, open up the conversation. Again, first time in Japan. And, you know, you you have to kind of realize culturally they're a bit reserved until they get to know you. And I said, oh, um, uh, is she okay? And then the translator said, she's okay. She's very nervous to be driving you guys around because she really loves Pixar. So this is a big deal for her. I'm like, okay, great. And I said, well, ask her what her, her favorite Pixar film is, trying to make conversation. She asked, she says, oh, Monsters, Inc. I said, oh my gosh, I worked on Monsters, Inc. I love that movie. And the girl began to shake. And then like these huge crocodile tears started rolling down her face. And you realize like, she had just met the Beatles. She had just met, you know, uh, I, I don't know. It was just this moment for her of, oh my gosh, I'm in the presence of somebody who, I'm like, I didn't make the movie myself. I worked on the movie, but it didn't matter to her. It was like, 
it was like touching the sun to her. It was just amazing. And it really was humbling. Uh, and at the same time I realized the Japanese have such a deep emotional connection to our films that, 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 that was really very special. It sounds funny. There was, there was a, a Pixar exhibition that came to the London science museum many, many years ago now. Yeah. And it was full of maquettes. Is that the word? Yes. One of the exhibits on that was the scene in Cars when Lightning and Sally go driving through the the canyons and the waterfall and what have you. They had this... It looked painted, like this animation thing, but like over four projectors. And you sort of stood there and it was like floor to ceiling and it was... Oh, yeah. It was oddly... It was oddly moving. It was oddly sort of... From something that you always think of 3D animation as being like hyper real and, you know, photorealism is the goal. And suddenly you're watching this thing and you think, you know, it's somebody's emotional interpretation of this thing. And it was just, that was amazing. And I, I wish I could, uh, I wish that was still traveling around. It's moving when it's done well. And I, you know, the, the beauty of the art department is seeing the concept paintings in a, a pastel, like a hand done pastel for a scene that ends up being in the movie. We do what's called a color script, which is like a little color key for all the emotional beats in the film. And the color script for cars is up in my building that I'm in now. And you can look at each one of those little tiny color scripts that are just the roughest little pastel done by a guy named Bill Cohn. And you know the moment in the movie. You can literally see, oh, there's, there, and it's, it can just be a splatter of blue paint for, um, you know, Doc Hudson or a splatter of red with some eyes for McQueen. But you know the moment in the movie. It's insane that it carries through. What do you think then when you see things like that vendor or you see somebody who's built an MX-5 into Lightning McQueen or or even um, Grosjean, was it last year when he, he had uh, Lightning McQueen on his helmet at oh, Cota? Yeah. Yes. I, what, what do you think to so this thing that you kind of look after and nurture becoming something that other people have taken and done things with? What's that like to sort of see how the rest of the world accepts cars it's interesting because i've always told people if we if we've done our job well with cars the movie it creates a child that grows up to care about cars or vehicles more than a child who maybe didn't see it that there's now a kid who's 16 or 17 that wants to go racing that maybe had a mcqueen poster on his wall as a child that we've actually had an effect positively towards racing and towards automobile that makes a generation of children care about it that maybe otherwise wouldn't have. So to me, that's the, 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 the biggest honor for me. I've gone to Goodwood a number of years as well, which uh, the revival is hands down one of my favorite events in the world. I love, love, love the revival. But at Festival of Speed, they had a McQueen and a Jackson there the year the movie came out. And it's just there along all the other manufacturers' vehicles. It was like that McQueen and Jackson in the paddock at, at the track. You just go, yeah, we're just part of this. And it brings a smile to an adult's face and it really changes a child's day. I mean, I can't think of anything better than that than, than positively affecting people's lives. One other thing, just before we, we move on from Pixar, I remember several years ago when I first heard of Pixar's Motorama show, mm. the first thing it made me think of was something possibly on either the Toy Story or Toy Story 2 DVD. When they were going around the offices when Pixar was at Point Richmond uh -huh. and had all of the customised and decorated cubicles and everyone just sort of with this creativity just overflowing from these people. When Motorama started, and it was more of a sort of Pixar gathering, so we'll, we'll go into how it's grown since, because yeah. my, my word. We had some good 
Yeah. What was the the car culture like at Pixar when you first started pulling these the this sort of show and shine together at uh, for the employees? It, there was a handful of us, just a handful of us that really were old car nuts. But we we were there. I think there's a lot of lovers of antiques and of you know oddities and toy collectors are not that many notches off from old car collectors. Automobilia and toys go kind of hand in hand. And so when we were in Point Richmond, they had the idea, and I didn't put together, the idea was to do, uh, they called it the Pixar Concord d'Elegance. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a joke. It was a joke. <laughs> it was in the car park. And it was literally, if you have an old, interesting car, some ratty old, interesting car, just dr- drive it in that day and we'll park them all together. Right? It's fun. And, and we, that really is a Pixar cultural thing. We, we don't pontificate too much. We just try fun things, just do things. There's, it's so easy to complain and say why you can't do something, but it's much better just to jump in and do it. So we did this Concord Elegance thing. This was last year in the old building. So 90, 99 or summer of 2000, summer of 2000. So that would be the first one. That's our last summer in Point Richmond. And um, the girl who sort of organized it, when she was done, she said, do you want to, we're moving to the new building to Emeryville. Do you want to take over this thing? You're much more of a car person than me. I said, yeah. So she sent me an Excel spreadsheet that had the, I probably still have it, the 16 cars from Pixar that participated. And I said, cool, we'll do it again. Um, I said, uh, but I kind of want to make it something more than just uh, this, this ruse. And I went to our head of HR at the time and I said, could I have a little bit of budget for the show? And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I just want to make it legitimate. I want to make T-shirts. I want to make little placards that go in front of the cars that tell the information about them um, and and maybe have like um, a band play, right? A live music thing so that it makes more of an outdoor experience. And he said, yeah, sure. So he was supportive and I renamed it the Motorama. That would have been the summer of 01, which we were at that point really deeply into working on cars. So there's now a whole crew of people working on cars and more people taking interest in cars, our studio was growing a bit. And the first one, Fantasy Junction across the street, which sells very high-end European cars right across the street, and they've been there for 25 plus years. And so we, we can bring over some things. And I think they brought over a 300 SL that belonged to Marlena Dietrich. And they brought over, like they brought over some like weapons grade vehicles to our show <laughs> that made no sense, right? They're not gonna get a sale out of us. I mean, this, this is a bunch of broke animators, but they brought these two gorgeous cars over and I flanked the front of our building with them. And then I had all the employee cars lined up on the the, the, the alcove and it looked like a real show with the band playing and the t-shirts and the little placards. It was the Motorama. That was the first year. By the next year, we had begun a relationship with car manufacturers in Detroit, and they started hearing about it. They said, well, do you want us to bring something? Manufacturers. And I said, "Uh, sure. And I realized this is the high water days when they had so much budget, right? And and they were bored. And so they said, we'll just send you whatever you want. And General Motors started bringing show cars out of their archives from the real Motorama. We had a genuine Motorama 1956 Cadillac. Oh, Uh, wow. Yeah, it got real very quickly. Um, we had, you know, we've had every, we've had everything. I mean, Ferrari has sent cars. Aston Martin has sent cars. Um, it, it got it got really good really fast. And so I began to separate them. I started having the classic and the concept cars on the lawn portion, which is our our football pitch. And I started putting modern supercars in the front on the bricks. And then I started keeping the employee cars in the wings because it's still an employee car show with guest vehicles. Now, I'll get emails from people saying, I want to bring my, and I said, it's not really for the public. It's not, it's not a show that I, I don't need your cool car. I love, it's great that you have a cool car, but I don't need that. What, what, what this is really about is the employees 
seeing what other employees have, and then also uh, dipping a little bit deeper into what the manufacturers and what the car world has as well. So, yeah. From what I understand, the, what should we say, the ethos of Motorama is shifting a little bit. Yeah. So last year, you know, we, we had, I had done everything I could possibly do at the Motorama. I mean, we, at one point we had the California Highway Patrol helicopter over our event and a, and a CHP officer like came down from the sky. I mean, I had a Carrera GT, the first one in the U.S. I had the first 991 GT3. I just, I had hit everything I could hit. I had Jay Leno bring a car every year and I thought we can just keep doing this, but maybe this is a good time to, to, to reset and go back. And so we, Last year, for the first time, we did an all-electric version. Um, and a lot of gearheads might go, uh, but I realized you cannot avoid what's coming, that electrification and these other means of, you know, I'm, I still, trust me, it's it's all petrol for me all the time. But you can't deny where new cars are are going and where, where that interest is. And so I had Tesla bring the semi-truck. Um, I had... Um, Jay Leno, did he bring something electric? I feel like he did. I, I don't remember what he brought, but all the manufacturers have budget for their electric car program. So they were all of a sudden, you know, willing to, to bring more things as well. So that's what we're, that's what we're doing now is, is we renamed it the uh, Moto Expo. And the Moto Expo is our electric version or our, actually it's alternative fuel. It can be hydrogen or whatever. So we did that and it was fun. And, and I think the employees who are not car people appreciated that because it also had a good message so and i think there's also a, a a huge growing scene which i think is probably still a little bit underground at the moment of of taking those old beautiful classics having a i don't know a 72 911 or something and electrifying it and making it into something that is you know it's beautiful and it's vintage but it's also contemporary and it's it's one of the things that I find really interesting with with electric is that you kind of you can get away from so many of the conventions, but then also you can kind of bring the past with you as well. If you can take your original drivetrain and put it on the shelf and put a bag over it so that it's safe and preserved, and run that car on that electric motor for a number of years cleanly without petrol and oil all over your garage, I don't see a downside to it if you're enjoying it. And it's always the ability to put it back as it was. Jonathan Ward from Icon brought his 49 or 50 Mercury that had Tesla drivetrain in it. And it pretty, look that car up. He had brought it to SEMA the year before and I saw it at SEMA and I photographed it and I asked him to bring it to the Moto Expo and he did. He brought it up for our Moto Expo and it, I put it out front because I said, this is a great example of the car still has character. It's still cool to look at, but all electric drivetrain. Looking back over the th- the whole franchise, what's your favorite little car moment or item? Mm, well, we another really cool part of the job is developing products uh, specific to markets. So, for instance, where you are, we have an office in, in Hammersmith on Queen Caroline Road, and that's the Walt Disney Company's hub right there. If you go past the Audi dealership or you're coming in from Heathrow and you go past Audi, after that, you'll see us. That's how I always know where we are when you start seeing the good car dealerships. You know, you're in West London and there's uh, Disney. We work with that office and they support what's called EMEA, uh, Europe, Middle East, uh, North Africa. And that's their region. And they develop products specifically. So we work with toy partners in that region to develop product cars or Pixar product for that region. We have another office in um, Toronto on Hills, Tokyo, that develops the Japanese product. 
And what's cool is developing toys for that market that works for that market that maybe wouldn't work for the US or for Europe, but works for Japan. Japan is special because the parents there are willing to pay more money for a toy because they have less room typically in their homes. They want that toy to last longer. They care about quality and they care about they care about the heirloom aspect that that child will pass it down to their younger brother or sister. So, for instance, in the U.S., people have a very, you know, Walmart target mentality of how cheap can I get it? And I'll buy it for Christmas and that's fine. And then after a couple of years, Johnny grows out of it and we give it to give it to a charity and we buy another toy. Japan says, let's spend a little bit more money and make it super high quality. And this child will keep it for a long time and then pass it down. I I personally love that a lot more. And so we developed some of my favorite toys we developed was with the Japanese team. Our toy partner over there is called Takara Tomi. And they made a henshin, which is the Japanese word for transformation, henshin McQueen that transformed into a racetrack. They made henshin mater that turned into the oil rig from cars Two. we did it. They're all at my work. I wish I could show them to you. They're, they're, they're brilliant. I mean, they're brilliant that we made a henshin red that turned into an emergency station and they're, they're gorgeous. And I think these things were probably 60 or $75 us back then. So, I mean, you know, they were really well, well built and I love them. And people are like, Oh my gosh, why, you know, it's hard to get a, a us or even a European department store to pay that kind of money and put that on the shelf and hope that there's enough people to buy it. So I get it, but I'm so grateful that we get to make things like that. That's very cool. That's very cool. So you said a moment ago that you were all petrol. Mm. I seen a photo of you with a very, very pretty baby blue nine eleven. Mm. What what is your your particular sort of niche when it comes to to the cars that you own? I, tell us about the nine eleven. The nine eleven is the newest, and I wasn't looking for it. It came to me we had a neighbor, an older lady that had it in her garage and it had been sitting for 13 years when we moved in across the street. And it was a really interesting story because her husband, the car's a 76 911 S, which I would never look for a 76. They're not my favorite year. The, the, if you know, 911s, 74 to 77 is, is a transitional car, right? 73 and earlier, beautiful, gorgeous, can't go wrong. Not an ugly one in the bunch. Uh, 78 and later, you have the SC, the motors figured out, the electronics are figured out, uh, galvanized body, you're good to go. 74 to 77 are the, a lot of smog equipment, impact bumper. It's the kid with braces, right? He's, he's getting there. He's just not quite there yet. And so I wasn't looking for one, but this woman had this in her garage and her husband had bought it when it was about a year old and he drove it for a while. He was an orthopedic surgeon in our town. He had done well for himself. And he only had it for about two or three years and he died in a plane crash tragically with both of her children. So she lost her entire, yes, it's absolutely a gut wrenching story that she lost her entire family, but she kept this house. She kept everything as it was, you know, probably to a a tragic degree. She kept everything as it was, but she drove that 911 sort of in her husband's memory between 1980 when he passed away and 97 or 98, she drove it and she wasn't a great driver. She ran into things. She hit curbs. She, you know, the car had been beaten, but the nice thing was it had always lived in a garage. It had zero rust. It had just been neglected. And so she said, would you help me get it running? My husband would be so mad that I've let it go. And I said, yeah, of course, how could I not? And I would go over on weekends and I would change the oil and drain the fuel tank and replace this and replace that. And she would get out her checkbook and write a little check for all the parts. And one day it ran and it was smoking like 
just smoking like a chimney. It was just, I thought this motor is probably shot from sitting so long, or it's going to take a long time for all this to burn off. And, you know, if you know about 9-11s, just to get the motor out and to reseal it and put it back together is, it's, it's expensive. And so I got some estimates for her and most of them were pretty pricey. And she said, I, I don't think I want to put this kind of money into the car. I think I'm going to sell it. And I said, well, if you're going to sell this money, I've just spent two years working on it for you. Could I, could I buy it? And she said, I, I don't want a bunch of money for it. I just, why don't you deduct the amount it would cost to get the car all fixed up and then set a price based on that, which was really sweet of her to do that. And we agreed on a super reasonable price. And she said, I'm, I'm just glad you have it. And so I got the car, I got it running, I got it fixed up. I did spend way more money than I expected to because it needed a lot. And then I picked her up in it. By this point, she'd moved to a, a, a senior living facility because she just couldn't live on her own anymore. She was really going down. And I registered the car in her husband's name at the car show. And it was just great because it was like she could step back in time for a minute. And his name was on the windshield, of, on the windscreen of the car at the car show. And it was it was really cool. So we still go visit her and, and it's, it's neat. It'll always sort of be her little car, but it, it means a lot to my family as well. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, that's an amazing story. It's, it is incredible that, uh, yeah, it's really wild because I left it as he had it. So it has a cassette, a Blaupunk cassette deck he'd put in, in like 79 or 80, uh, that he could take his doctor's notes. It had the plug in microphone. So you could like take the patient while you're driving. Um, it had, um, a seventies alarm system with a keypad in the glove box that I took that out. It was garbage. But, um, in the door pocket was all his little, bits and, and memorabilia. It was just like this car was like a little time capsule that she just drove. And, um, it's, it's Sapphire. It's called Minerva blue, which is a beautiful color. It's got a sunroof. It's a five speed. It's got the alloys. It's a great spec 76. So I just put it to European. I, I dropped it to European ride height. I did European rear bumper guards, which are smaller, uh, clear side markers, uh, you know, uh, the H4 flat headlamps, the European headlamps, basically the European cars looked right. And the American cars were sort of dorked up to meet this, uh, you know, U.S. safety standard. They even raised the American cars off the ground. That's why they look like four by fours, because we impact standard of the bumper had to be a certain height. So I just put it all back. You know the story about the DeLorean headlights, do you? I don't know about the headlights. Was it, was it American standard what they had to do for the U.S.? What they had to do was, the as they were developing the car, the beam height on a DeLorean changed, the regulation changed, and they hadn't got the money to re-engineer the headlamp unit, so they put longer springs on the front of the American cars just so the headlamps pointed up and it passed regulation. Classic. So, so, so honky. Everything about that car was just a bit honky. I mean, if it, honestly, let, let's just be honest for a moment. If it wasn't for Back to the Future that car would probably be regarded like a Bricklin or a, you know, one of these other 70s, 80s dream cars that, why would you put that, would have a Peugeot engine in it? Why would you, you know, underpower, it, it wasn't a, it was a not a bad design. The, the basic design of the body was pretty for that time period, but the, the just the worst engine and the hokiest little things and the, the body was alloy, but the front bumper was painted and didn't quite match and it was just, all these weird stuff. You can tell that they had to jam it out this factory in Ireland as quick as they could. And there was, I remember going to look at those new when I was a child and was so excited with my dad. As soon as he walked up to it, he could tell it was what you call it, what we would call in the U S a 10 footer. When you get more than <laughs> 10 feet away, it looks great. And then you get up close and you go, 
oh, this is a brand new car. And they've left this little thing hanging and this, this bit's missing. And, you know, they weren't, they weren't quite dialed in. Oh, that's the most charitable description of a DeLorean I've ever heard. They weren't quite dialed in. Yeah, tin footer. So anyway. One one last thing. I, I, I keep coming back to cars. You've already mentioned him, but as an F1 fan, mm. given some of the, the drivers who've had cameos or, in Lewis Hamilton's case, an actual part in, in the films, yeah, what's it like for you as a fan to think today's the day that... Michael Schumacher's coming in and doing a, a a voice record, or did Alonso do one for one market, or did I imagine that he did? Yeah, he did for the Spanish market version of the film. And then, fortunately, when it's um when it's an overseas version, their local offices record them. So, for instance, the UK version of Cars has Jeremy Clarkson as the agent for Hart, which I didn't know for years. And I'm a big Top Gear fan, as I think I mentioned earlier, and I would have loved to have been there for that recording session with Jeremy Clarkson being Harv the agent. <laughs> that was one my, my wife on one of our many watchings of Cars. She goes, why do I know that voice? And I go, it's Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Clarkson. Yes. Yes, it's him. And it's perfect role for him. Perfect role for him. And to answer your question, um, it's, it's really cool to have this kind of royalty in the automotive world doing these voices. I remember... I did go to SEMA one year and I went to a steakhouse just because it was this old school steakhouse called the Golden Steer. And I'm sitting there having a steak. It's somewhere off the strip in Las Vegas. It's really this snapshot in time of Vegas in the cool days. And across from me is Mario Andretti and he's eating dinner. And I look over at him and I said, hey, Mr. Andretti, I'm sorry to bother you. I said, I'm Jay. I work at, at Pixar and you were a voice for us in cars. I just want to say hello. And he said, oh, you know, nice to meet you. And he says, you know, I get a lot of kids coming up to me asking for my autograph and they all just want me to autograph that die cast. He said, they don't really know that I won an F1 or Indy. They don't know any of that. They only know me as the guy from the movie Cars. And he said, I'm grateful for that because there's somebody under 40 or 50 years old that knows who I am and cares. And Richard Petty essentially said the same thing. It's cool to me that we that we sort of bridge that gap for a lot of these guys as well. Like the Blues Brothers, it gave a whole generation of singers a, a whole new audience. Cab Calloway, come on, he's the best. <laughs> Absolutely. I could talk for hours about all things Pixar, but to keep things on a vaguely automotive theme, we've got a few rapid-fire questions we go through before we wrap up. So, okay. what's your favourite car movie of recent years? I know you were talking about Drive last time, which is a good one. I think Baby Driver has some really great driving in it and baby driver i love that those were pretty much practically done shots that they really used the car there was no cg you know goofiness about it and it was really well done and they used a a a, a great getaway car is what they used is a is a drivable right a wrx is a great getaway car it's a rally car yeah which youtube channel should people be watching other than Pixar's, of course. Besides Pixar Cars YouTube channel, the Peterson Automotive Museum has been doing some great things lately. Um, I'm going to be doing a little Q&A about cars on the Peterson Automotive channel, answering some questions about the film. Um, and they also have been doing vault tours and, and things like that that have been really cool. So that, that's always a good watch. Given a huge budget, what's the film that you'd love to make? Well, it's interesting you say that. I'm working on a live action film about, it's a father-daughter story, but the backdrop is board track racing, motorcycle board track racing. So in the 19 teens and 20s, uh, cars and motorcycles in the U.S. ran on wooden banked oval tracks uh, that were akin to a velodrome for bicycles. 
in the 19 teens, motorcycles were going 110 to 115 miles per hour on tires that were essentially bicycle tires. And the bikes had no brakes because brakes were considered too much weight. Um, you know, you weren't going to hit anything if you're just going in a circle, they thought. Um, no clutch. It was a solid engagement like a crash box. And uh, these, these bikes were hauling. And on top of that, you had a constant loss oil system. So the track would get oily. Yeah, you can imagine. And then the wood boards were bare wooden boards. So they called it Splinter Alley when these guys fell. And there has never been a movie about board track racing that, that was well done. And so I've developed a, a live action story uh, centered around board track racing. And that hopefully we're going to get moving on pretty soon here, which I'm excited about. Oh, wow. Oh, well, keep us posted and we'll, uh, we'll be happy to share that with our listeners. Yeah, it's going to be cool. It, which car movie or TV series do you think is worth a reboot? Oh, that's a good question. I'm trying to think of the good ones versus the bad ones. Right? The, the reboot would be make it better than it was before. Um, you know, some, some old animation was really poorly done, but the series were fun. Like the original Speed Racer animation series is not very well animated. It was cheap, cheap animation, but the episodes are really fun. And I got my son to start watching those and he really likes the original Speed Racer. I got him to watch the original Thunderbirds Argo, you know, filmed in Super Mariatron with the pup. And the original ones are so weird and bizarro. But they're great and they're so fun to watch. You know, they're probably not very PC now. They were all made in the 60s, but they're, they're, they're great. Those are just two that I, I love finding old stuff I used to watch and having my son watch it and, and finding a new love for it again. So, Have you seen the Wachowskis Speed Racer? Yeah. Okay. And that one was, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, when you have something that is just all aesthetics, but there's no uh, core you know, it's like all look, but no, no substance. And that that's a trap a lot of filmmakers fall into is worrying so much about the aesthetics that you just kind of go, what was that about? Is that a person, a place or a thing? Let's start with that. <laughs> Who should I talk to in a future episode of this podcast? You talk to Will Buxton, which is fantastic. Um, you should talk to Danny Sullivan. Um, he, you know, he's a great driver. He's still around. He, he's a he's a steward for F1, which is cool. He's become a good friend of mine. Um, he lives in the Monterey Pebble Beach area, and I saw him at the Mexico City F1 race last year. And he brought me back to the stewards area and showed me all the monitors they look at. And he is such a gracious, easygoing guy that has so much racing history. In fact, I think when Red Bull first started their program, he was one of the guys who watch the Red Bull drivers. I think Danny Sullivan, you remember they had a little reality TV series for a while? Was it Red Bull or was it the, or maybe I think of the Nissan, the, the GT Academy. I, I think he was one of the judges on that, but he also was part of the early Red Bull training when they were, when they were kind of, did they buy it from Jaguar? Yes. I think the Red, Red Bull started from the, the ashes of the Jaguar team. And I think Danny was one of the guys who was trying to find a junior development driver. Anyway, he's got a fascinating history in the racing world and he's such a personable down to earth car guy who loves other car people. He would be great. Fantastic. I'll add him to the list. And finally, what's the best way for people to follow you? What you do? Um, I'm on Instagram. Uh, I think it's East Bay J on Instagram. And, uh, I do have a Twitter account. I don't, write very much on Twitter. I just read what other people write, but uh, I'm out there. And then obviously you can always find me in the world of cars. So I'm there as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time, Jay Ward. Now it's been a pleasure. Thank you. 